welcome to the Enthusiast Podcast, where I sit down with leading founders, operators, and investors that are trailblazers in their ecosystems, leapfrogging development and creating growth for their economies. We dive into the nitty-gritty of scaling business and investing, showcasing the tremendous success cases beyond Silicon Valley. Hi, this is Pat from The Enthusiast, and you're in for a really special episode with Jonathan Whittle, managing partner and co-founder of Krona, a leading fintech inclusion fund, active in emerging markets, and we dive into his story into VC from uh, being a long-term operator in the Latin American tech ecosystem over to joining Axion and then subsequently co-founding Krona. Alongside his seven-year investment track record with Krona, he sat on the boards of Creditas, Confio, Biz Capital, Klar, Adi, and many others. It was really a pleasure to pick his brain on how to manage the current downturn We dive into the different waves of fintech adoption and what that methodology actually means for the maturity of fintech in the region and the role regulators are playing to pave the way towards future, more equitable financial ecosystems in emerging markets. Especially we dissect the question on do fintechs in the B2C space need to become banks or can they just leverage Banking as a Service Solutions. It was such a pleasure having Jonathan on the show. Without further ado, directly onto the episode with Jonathan Whittle, co-founder of Krona. And remember, you can follow The Enthusiast wherever you're getting your podcast and check out our newsletter on LinkedIn or Substack to always stay up to date with the latest episodes. Now onto the show. Hi, Jonathan. It's such a pleasure having you on the Enthusiast Podcast today. Thanks, Alex. It's a real pleasure. I've enjoyed your podcast. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Brilliant. I already had your colleague, Monica Brandengel, on the show, so it was only adequate to have you on here as well and get your perspective on certainly Krona and what is new for the fund, but also how LATAM FinTech, which is certainly your, your focus, has been evolving over the last year since you've been operating within the ecosystem. But before that, I'm really curious to take a step back, how you actually ended up in the world of investing and how then Krona happened and how your LATAM connection came about. Despite my, my name, I actually um, grew up in Central America and uh, in Spain and spent my entire career in, uh, in, in Latin America. Spanish is my second first language, as I like to say. So uh, I've grown up with Latin America in my veins. My career has been on both sides of the table. I started out in the telecom space with three U.S. venture-backed and focused on Latin America and had the privilege of being part of the founding management team of, uh, of those three companies. This is back in the, uh, in, in the 90s. Companies that got to pretty significant scale, uh, expanded throughout the region. Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, Colombia, uh, Chile, Uruguay. So it really, really, really companies that got some pretty significant scale. With, with the first of those, moved to Argentina. Told my wife we were moving for six months. We ended up staying for for, uh, for seven years with a, a succession of companies that that we started uh, where I was managing our, our operations. And then the internet bubble burst at the same time that Argentina and Brazil went into uh, went into crisis. 
This is in uh, in 2001. Those are difficult times, right? You learn a lot through uh, uh, having been in rapidly growing uh, companies, able to raise uh, all the capital they needed to suddenly kind of slamming into a wall, uh, which is what happened in that period. We had an, an IPO of the second company that was postponed in, uh, in 2000. Eventually, that company was recapped, really cramming down all of the uh, all of the founders. Was eventually sold to UOL, is now UOL GView, and same thing with a, uh, a a data center company that uh, where I was part of the founding management team, managing our operations in Argentina, raised three hundred thirty million dollars in less than a year in equity, and then equity market completely closed down. That company was sold for a song to one of the small shareholders um, at, at the time, Votarantin Ventures. It's today uh, one of the largest um, uh, data center operators in uh, in Brazil called Tivit, but again, completely crammed down. Right? So you kind of learn those lessons of uh, going through those those crises that when when they affect the globe tend to affect Latin America even more. With that, I returned to the US and uh, was fortunate enough to join a, a private equity firm called Darby, which is now a part of uh, Franklin Templeton to manage a, a venture fund for Latin America. At the time, it was one of the very, very few venture funds operating in Latin America. Uh, so I joined in 2002 and managed that fund uh, through uh, 2011. If you look back on, on what was going on in the world of venture in Latin America at the time, it was basically nothing. It was us and Intel Capital and a few very small subscale funds that were uh, that were also investing made some very interesting investments actually made some investments in the uh, financial services space which is what first introduced me to fintech but then uh, after a few years at, uh, at at darby got the entrepreneurial itch wanted to get back and do something on the other side of the table the entrepreneurial side of the table and launched a uh, company the prepaid uh, payment space in uh, in brazil a company called acesso it was uh, really the first of the Companies to secure a non non bank issuing license with uh, with Mastercard was a precursor to what now are the uh, are the are the challenger banks. Was CEO of that company for the first three years of its history before wanting to get back on the uh, on the investment side of the table, where I was uh, fortunate enough to to connect with uh, with my co founders Monica Brand Engel and uh, and Ganesh Ranglaswamy to launch what uh, what today is Quona, a fund focused on fintech in emerging markets. We invest across. Um, South, Southeast Asia, Latin America, Africa, now also uh, the, the Middle East, focusing on companies that are at that intersection between financial technology and financial inclusion. So we invest in companies that are expanding access to financial services for small, mid-sized businesses and also for consumers, and um, uh, really built out a platform that is truly global, team members across all of the markets that we invest in. And we seek to leverage the uh, understanding that we have of what's going on in the world of fintech to inform our investment decisions and hopefully bring value to our, our portfolio companies and uh, and co-investors. So it's been, a, it's been a great ride. That that first fund was, um, was raised in 2015. 15, we're now investing out of our out of our third fund, and uh, for me, it's yeah, it's been a been fantastic because I get to do what I love to do, which is to uh, engage with and partner with uh, with uh, entrepreneurs at the early stage that are dreaming the big dreams, you know, building the the fantastic companies, and to partner with them through through the good times and bad. And at the same time, we've been able to you know build a firm from scratch. So it's uh, also a very very entrepreneurial endeavor to build a firm. That may be something that. Often entrepreneurs don't appreciate that that starting a starting a fund itself or fund manager itself is very much an entrepreneurial endeavor. There's so much to unpack there. I want to kick things off and directly going off of the script here. But you were mentioning that you lived through those crisis moments we had in the in the 2000s, how that affected Latam, and now we are living going through another crisis moment where it was really a boom year in 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 2021 and and now obviously we, we are having kind of the negative negative side side effects from it like what were some of the learnings you had from 
that first boom and bust cycle that you've experienced versus the boom and bust cycle we are living through now. Are there certain parallels? There clearly are some parallels. And I think as a, as a venture industry, I think we need to be careful not to assume that things are going to bounce back to, uh, to, to where they were anytime soon. Perhaps they will, but I think we need to be prepared for possible long slog. If you look back at, uh, you know, the period that it took for venture to recover, not just in Latin America, but, uh, but in the U.S. Uh, after the internet bubble burst, it was till 2007, 2008 that things began turning around. So it was a multi-year process of, uh, of, of rebuilding. Now, Latin America is in a very different place than it was back in, uh, in, in 2000, 2001, right? At the time, all of our venture funding it, at OptiGlobe, at Divio and at RMD, the first company I was with was all from U.S. investors, right? Uh, when the internet bubble burst, when telecom melted down, when Argentina and Brazil entered into crisis, they pulled back wholesale and, uh, and didn't come back for over a decade, well over a decade, actually. We're now in a very, very different, uh, different situation. The venture ecosystem is, has very deep roots. You have now local capital at scale. You have venture firms that uh, have really been able to build a solid track record, amazing teams. And you have an ecosystem that goes from the seed stage for early stage all the way through sophisticated capital markets that I think uh, means that the venture ecosystem is here to stay. But some of the lessons I think to be learned from that era, which was an era of easy money, is that you really can very quickly become exceedingly optimistic that uh, money will always be available. And in, in the case of the, uh, of the bubble bursting in 2000, that, uh, that shedding of the, uh, of the spigot was immediate and, uh, and was, was, was quite devastating for companies that still required additional capital. It was those companies that had had the good fortune to have raised in the uh, 2000 or, or 99 and that, that were flush with capital that were then able to actually clean up and pick up a lot of assets and do so on the cheap. And I think some of the same thing has, has happened for us in the 2021 and even early 2022 era. Those companies that had the foresight, in part pushed by, by, by board members, some of whom have that memory of what happened in 2000 to, to raise capital when, when, when it was available, are today in a much better spot than those that are out needing to raise capital today. But look, it's, it's, we're, in, we're in a fortunately, I think, a very different environment thankfully. But I do think that it's possible that this is going to be a much longer winter than uh, than any of us anticipate. And better to prepare for that today than to work under this, uh, under this assumption that things are going to snap back and go back to, let's say, a normal of what 2018, 19 looked like. It's possible. But uh, if, if we look at the, at the history of, uh, of the internet bubble bursting uh, and its impact on Latin America and on the on U.S. markets, you know, it could be could be quite a bit longer. But a lot to unpack there, a lot to discuss. But those are some of the uh, some of the the lessons. Uh, the other thing I would just say personally, right, having been part of uh, entrepreneurial endeavors where you start counting your the value of your uh, of, of your options and your uh, your stock holding is, you know, don't count your chickens before they're hatched. Stay humble. We've been talking about this now. For quite a while right the winter is going to stay longer than we expect make your cuts now like let's presume that the ones that are actually listening have done that and they took the medicine what should they do now i mean they've extended their runway is it just hunkering down focusing on your business like what should you actually do now because before the mantra was grow at all cost those VCs, they push you to have these top 100% CAGR every year. And if you don't, you're not going to be able to fundraise and you really want to compete on those bigger, bigger rounds. Like it, it feels like to me a bit and experiencing that kind of the first time, we had these conversations for several months now 
like what what are we going to talk about now we're we just going to wait till the situation improves till, till we find a new equilibrium so the good news is there's plenty of capital available for great companies. There's a huge overhang of capital raised by venture capital firms and by by growth equity firms. So good companies uh, still can get funded. A few things to uh, to to focus on. A business fundamentals. Uh, you need you need to have a, a business that makes sense, that has good unit economics, that is capital efficient, uh, that has a clear path to profitability, if not already have achieved profitability. Uh, that's one. Two. We're seeing this across our portfolio companies and across the industry. You can do a hell of a lot more than you think with a lot less resources. Multiple companies have gone through significant reductions in force and have found that morale can be managed and, and managed to be high. Productivity can actually be managed uh, to even increase. Uh, so uh, I think there's a, a discovery that we've actually gotten a little too uh, too fat and happy in uh, in prior years, and there's a lot more you can do with a lot less than you think in this uh, in this new era. And the final thought here is that entrepreneurs and existing shareholders need to reset uh, valuation expectations, and that's kind of stating the obvious. But good companies are getting funded, but at valuations that also make sense. It's realizing all of that that I think will allow companies to survive, even if they do require additional capital. But I think we all need to be realistic that companies that don't yet have a proven business model, that are still trying to find product market fit, that expect that that once they get to scale, they'll be able to figure out monetization. Unfortunately, those are going to have a very difficult uh, uh, time fundraising today. But Again, I, I think I think a lot of this has already been absorbed by the uh, by the industry over the past few months. Absolutely, and more specifically, talking about your purview, fintech in, in emerging markets, is there certain aspects of what you just mentioned that that are different? I mean, fintech in Latam used to be like fifty percent of the invested capital uh, over the last years on a continuous basis, like consistently hovering at 40-50% of all the capital was available. Fintech was the industry to be in and probably still is. Has that changed now? Is there certain unique considerations that you would take over to, to the fintech startups of today? The fintech opportunity in emerging markets continues to be incredibly compelling. I don't know what percentage is going to be of, uh, of, of overall venture investments this year and the next few years, but it's going to continue to be a major driver of, uh, of deployment of, of capital. And, and the reason for that is, I would say, twofold. One, there's still a massive uh, unserved uh, segment of the business and consumer population across emerging markets. That population is increasingly digitized, is increasingly online, uh, is increasingly sophisticated and requires financial services designed and, uh, and offered to them in ways that meet their needs, A. And then B, if you look at, at the profit pool of financial services in emerging markets, it's astounding. Right. If you look at the uh, the the uh, return on, uh, on on equity, return on assets, uh, also of of uh, of banks across emerging markets, it's multiples of what it is in the U.S. and you know, many multiples of what it is in Europe. If you look at uh, net interest margins, if you look at uh, at just the the, the fee income of, uh, of incumbents, it's astounding. And so there's a lot of fat and opportunity for uh, technology companies to bite into that apple, to expand access to financial services uh, uh, for, for underserved segments, and to nibble away at that, uh, at that profit pool. One of the things I find really fascinating, right, is uh, when you look at, at Brazil and the very rapid growth of, uh, of challenger banking, and then you look at the profit of an Itaú, 
Bradley School took a hit this year based on its credit portfolio. But overall, I mean, profit, you know, the, the, the revenues and profits of the, of the large banks continue to grow at an extraordinary pace. It just gives you a sense of how big this market opportunity is. And now as we, as we uh, kind of go into next waves of, of fintech innovation based on regulatory advances, based on uh, the creation of foundations, banking as a service and the like, that's allowing for a lot more innovation and creativity around the design of, of products and services for particular niches or segments within the consumer and small business market. I think uh, we're going to see more and more opportunity uh, in this space and often now intersecting with other segments of the economy through embedded finance uh, solutions that are leveraging high customer engagement, deep data of uh, of non-financial service businesses uh, that can increase monetization, increase stickiness of their relationships through through financial services that I think is also going to fuel a lot of uh, a lot of uh, fintech investments that maybe are at that intersection of you know commerce and and fintech that perhaps sometimes might be categorized as fintech or might be categorized as as uh, as uh, as as something else but ultimately has uh, has some relationship with uh, with fintech. So I'm generally super bullish. I think uh, I think we're still in the early stages of the transformation of financial services and emerging markets by uh, by by technology. Totally. You mentioned it. I mean, if you just look at the legacy traditional financial players in places such as Latam and we see their margins it, it really shows how, how big the opportunity is and what you mentioned also there in terms of the different waves of fintech adoption and uh, the different ways of innovation we've been seeing we started with challenger banks we moved then over to more uh, targeted aspects uh, of, of the population and certainly the b2b aspects where are we at now and Is it really adequate to talk about waves? Is it like literally like you've got one wave and then it's over and then you have to move to the next and there's nothing else to be done in the other? Like we still have so so many underbanked and uh, unincluded consumers in in Latam that cannot open bank account and that hasn't really changed since since Newbank started and since Newbank has has listed probably. What what's your take on on that model overall? Uh, one could make the case that unsecured consumer lending also in certain markets is already you know, fairly developed uh, and somewhat crowded. But I agree with you. There's still a massive segment of the population that is unserved or underserved and still a lot of opportunity there. I would make the point that, you know, B2B investments have always been uh, compelling. We've been investing in in the B2B space for uh, for for many years, starting with companies like Confio in uh, in Mexico, companies like Contabilize in Brazil. You know, B2B has always been a significant theme for fintech investments in the region. Some of the first IPOs in fintech in Latin America were B2B companies, companies like Stone, Pagseguro, that were clearly focused on the uh, on the B2B space. So I think that there's still a lot of opportunity in both, but I, I certainly don't think that we're taught where there is a wave that was first focused on on uh, on consumer and is now focused on, uh, on, on B2B, where I do think that we are now in a, a next stage or a stage two is, as I mentioned, the innovation that's coming from companies that are able to leverage the infrastructure that was laid over the last 10 years by some of those pioneers uh, and by the emergence of banking as a service providers that allow new entrants to come in, not have to build out their own infrastructure, focus on developing products and services for particular sectors with the ability to be able to iterate very rapidly on that uh, on that product with flexible access to infrastructure at relatively low cost because they don't have to build it out themselves, combined with 
a regulatory environment that has been increasingly favorable to the entrance of new players and that has has embraced fintech as a means to expand financial inclusion to lower costs and to break the hegemony of the banks and that that i think is that kind of next wave but i think we'll still see a lot of opportunity both in the consumer side the business side and uh you know i don't think that the wave is uh, is can can be defined in uh, in in those ways necessarily and even look in banking there will continue to be innovation around banking for particular segments and particular niches. Look at the U.S. market, where uh, over the past few years, you've seen the emergence of, even in a highly banked uh, country, uh, the emergence of a, a, a number of consumer-focused banks uh, with particular uh, targets, particular value propositions for particular segments that have been quite successful. I think we'll continue to see that in Latin America as well, simply because of the size of the un- unmet uh, need in uh, in both the the the, the small business and the uh, and the consumer space. So true. And double clicking on the regulatory piece, uh, as you were saying, we've got some of the most progressive regulators in in LATAM, the Brazilian Central Bank, as an example, in terms of fintech legislation, there has been a lot of movement in Latin America in particular over the last years. How important is it really to have a fintech law and that regulatory security around that? Is it more important for the consumer? Is it to be on an even playing field with legacy players and the newcomers? What are the key aspects there that we have to consider for a flourishing financial ecosystem how important is that regulatory piece it's really important but let me let me define it in this way i think you know you had a regulatory environment that was it was oriented towards incumbent banks and it was very inflexible the regulatory capital requirements the regulatory oversight and burden of these uh, of these licenses far exceeded what any startup could uh, could could justify and you also had segments of the uh, the financial services space that were highly concentrated and needed to be broken. So I think what what we've seen in Brazil in particular, which I think is a shining light and example for the rest of Latin America and increasingly for emerging markets as a as a whole, they started out in the payment space by breaking what was at the time a duopoly in in merchant acquiring with um, the creation of the opportunity for new entrants to come in. That's what fueled the emergence of companies like Stone, like Paxewudo and, uh, and, and others. Then they created a regulatory scheme for entrance into, into the, uh, into the payments at world. Aceso, which I, which I co-founded was a beneficiary of that. One of the first recipients of a new regime of licenses for new entrants, whereas previously and again, the, the licenses were really for the, uh, the the larger incumbents, and they've they've since continued to open the, the licensing path for lending now for a, a variety of new uh, new types of, uh, of of payments operations. They've now moved to foreign exchange, and of course launched picks. But all of this is part of a a strategy to create an open space for new entrants with much more flexible licensing uh, regimes that yes, provide new entrants with regulatory clarity, but that also provides them with a path uh, wherein they can start small and then secure additional stages or types of licenses as they scale, rather than needing to qualify for a large scale license from the, from the beginning. And that I think has been really what has created now that space for new entrants and the regulatory certainty for those uh, for those entrants as they 
go through their path of scaling, adding in additional products and services. I think, again, that Brazil in particular has been able to systematically open this this space for uh, for new entrants uh, in a very objective way, engaging with both the incumbents, but most importantly with the new entrants in order to really create an environment that was welcoming, but also allowed them to maintain regulatory oversight and avoid kind of systemic risks. And they've been able to do that over multiple years because they have independence. And that I think is key, right? So not all the regulators have the type uh, of independence that the central bank does in uh, in Brazil. And that's led to the development of regulatory environments across Latin America that have been at different speeds and with different levels of success. What's what's remarkable about Brazil is the continuity that you've seen over the last 10 years and the programmatic way in which they've opened space for new entrants and, and addressed each, each component of the financial services space as part of really what has been a master plan, which you can really only do if you're not politicized, you have you know extraordinarily smart technocrats essentially managing this process and that have a, a clear objective driving financial inclusion, uh, impacting costs, and breaking the hegemony of, uh, of the incumbents, but over a multi, multi, uh, multi-year process. I would wish that all were able to embrace not just the policies, but the independence of the central bank that, that Brazil has, because without that independence, we can talk about policies all day long. But if you have discontinuity from uh, presidency to presidency, that, uh, that I think has been a major challenge in a number of Latin American countries. Fascinating what Brazil has achieved. What I'm wondering, if you spin this further, in the UK, there are several players that provide bank-like services, but they're not a bank. I mean, WISE is, is, is not a bank, right? And, and uh, there, there's others that kind of provide you with those licenses. Banking as a service is, is a popular model there. How do you see that? emerging in LATAM. I mean, Pomelo is doing certain parts of that where they provide components of the value chain of, of, of fintechs to, to players that don't want to go through that regulatory hassle of, of having their credit cards, etc. Right. But how how is that playing out? And do we expect to see when we go into the next wave of, of B2C fintechs in the region that those do not necessarily have to be banks, but they can provide bank-like services? Banking as a service has had a major impact on um, on the development of uh, financial technology companies, not just in Latin America, but elsewhere. And yes, you don't need to be a bank in order to uh, to enter into the financial services space uh, or to offer bank-like services. Most of the challenger banks that emerged in uh, in Latin America and throughout the emerging uh, markets have have not had to had have their their own banking license, but have rather relied on partners in order to uh, to get started. And that's a fantastic model to get started. Eventually, though, if you want to be a full-service bank and be the principal banking relationship for your clients, you need to be able to take deposits. Deposits, uh, being able to take deposits is going to have a major impact on your cost of capital and your ability then to compete on, on credit. The importance of that varies from market to market. So I would say that in Brazil, where the capital markets are very sophisticated and, and very deep, the ability to raise debt capital through flexible securitized debt vehicles like Fijiks uh, at scale from local investors uh, without having to worry about um, you know hedging or anything like that from uh, from international investors makes having a banking license and taking deposits perhaps less important than it is in other markets like Mexico where the local capital markets are not as developed where lenders generally are depending on credit lines from international investors that tend to 
be more expensive, uh, where hedging costs and the like need to be factored in. Their having access to deposits can have a major impact on your cost of capital and therefore what you can uh, you can offer to your customers. But that's really something that you want to consider down the road. It's not something that you want to enter into to uh, to get started. Again, regulatory capital, the regulatory burden is quite high. And fortunately, now we have uh, a, a number of pre-sophisticated banking as a service providers that allow firms to, to uh, really get to some pretty significant scale without needing to build out their own banking operation or secure their own uh, their own banking license. In fact, I would say in Latin America, we're just now beginning to see companies that have achieved the, the kind of scale where getting securing a banking license becomes justified. Creditas, for example, just acquired a bank is now uh, incorporating that into its uh, into its operation. But that's uh, that's a you know company that is now uh, uh, you know, over twelve years old. It's not something that I think today needs to be a priority in the early days. Fortunately, right, it provides a lot more flexibility as you plan the the establishment and uh, and, and growth of a new company. Think a little bit out of the box. I mean, if you were a fintech founder today. What would you do? What what would you launch as a product? What would you operate in? What would be something that you're completely excited about, considering that the market is so much more mature than it was 10, 12 years ago, 12 years ago when Credita started? <laughs> That's a great question. Let me talk a little bit about what why about embedded finance and why we're in, we're in, we're compelled by that. You know, embedded finance is about incorporating financial services into uh, existing business models where you are leveraging relationships with uh, with existing clients uh, you're leveraging deep data about the the, the needs wants uh, and requirements of those clients and then using financial services in order to increase your monetization increase the overall stickiness of your uh, of your business model to design services that uh, keep them on the platform with uh, a lifetime value that is significantly greater than what the business would be able to achieve without financial services so that is an area that we're quite excited about, one that we've been investing in pretty heavily, uh, not just in Latin America, but elsewhere, and that is enabled by the banking as a service infrastructure that's been created over the last few years. Other areas that that I would say that you know new new entrepreneurs should be focused on, really key is uh, the capital efficiency of your business model, getting to rapid product market fit with good unit economics. There's not a lot of patience today uh, or capital available for Business models that require you know, significant scale, uh, significant capital to get a, a customer base after which you can then determine how to, uh, how to monetize. Focusing on from the beginning business models that are, are going to have uh, unit economics that work and work fairly quickly, uh, and that are capital efficient is, uh, is, is super important. Beyond that, look, I'm hesitant to, to suggest any particular business models because that's the beauty of this business, right? That has the beauty of, of venture is the constant surprise of entrepreneurs who are king, coming up with radically new ideas and uh, are, are leveraging infrastructure that exists, but that are taking this in completely different directions. Part of the, the, the fun of venture is to be constantly surprised and to constantly be learning. But again, I, I do think that this is a more capital constrained environment that needs to uh, be front and center for any uh, entrepreneur wanting to go out and, uh, and, and launch something today. Perfect. And that segues nicely into, into my next question about Krona. You just closed a new fund of 300 million of fresh capital, if I'm not mistaken. And if you look at the track record of Krona on how you are combining 
impact with profit it's it's truly remarkable and i mean the conversation i had with uh, monica on this um, was to me truly mind-blowing but how do you see the evolution of corona within that context and what are some of the next milestones for corona sure um so as you mentioned we're now investing in our third fund is a 330 million dollar fund you know we continue to as i mentioned earlier see a lot of opportunity in fintech across emerging markets But what we're seeing today is also a, an increased interest by investors in the overall uh, mission and objective of, uh, of Quona. When we started out, we aimed to create a different kind of, of, of venture firm that combined uh, both top-tier financial return and the kind of discipline around making investment decisions that would allow us to be investing into companies that really could deliver the risk-adjusted market returns that investors uh, would expect from any top-tier venture fund, combined with an authentic, measurable approach to having an impact on the societies in which we invest, and specifically focused on, on financial inclusion, which we believe is you know, kind of the engine that uh, that makes economies work, that allows individuals and companies to thrive, is is ultimately the foundation upon which prosperity can be built in, uh, in, in these countries. And so we were launching the firm at a time when I'd say most impact funds were still very much about concessionary capital, very much focused on the societal impact, not necessarily on the financial return. We believe that By creating a different kind of firm that focused on both financial return and uh, and social impact without compromising on either, that we could then unlock capital at scale. It's interesting, right? So it's about investing into companies that can have impact at scale and that can really drive financial returns that ultimately then unlocks capital at scale and creates that virtuous cycle. And so we're beginning to see that. We're seeing more and more interest from, from LPs in this world. Nobody wants to give up on, uh, on, on financial return, but if they can have that financial return and have an investment strategy that Uh, allows them to be able to tell their constituents, hey, we're actually doing some good in the world. There's actually more and more interest in that. So that's that's a, that's been very rewarding. Of course, we continue to build out our team, expand our the geographic coverage of our of our investments. But generally, we're continuing to do the same thing as we have since we since we started. Just to back, uh, you know, early stage entrepreneurs in this fascinating intersection between fintech and financial inclusion but i do want to just highlight you know it's not just what's going on in the world of fintech but i think uh, what's what's particularly exciting is to see the increased interest from uh, from lps in platforms like ours that have been able to demonstrate that that you can indeed uh, have both the financial returns and measurable authentic financial uh, social impact absolutely i feel like sometimes and i mean the successful corona speaks for itself but when you fundraise in the early days it must have been quite challenging to have that conversation with LPs because I mean people like to put you in certain boxes and it's difficult to say in which box Krona fits because you're not impact only you're not finance only and it's it's a bit more blowy and by design and it's meant to be right but how how tough was that and and getting that right and getting to the right LPs that understood this and accompanied Krona in in several vintages 
It certainly was much more difficult in the early days because what we were what we were seeking to prove was as of yet unproven. There were a few firms that had emerged that were later stage investors that were still in the early days of proving that you could ind- you could actually deliver uh, top financial returns and measurable uh, measurable social impact. But at the venture stage, we were we were pretty pioneering, not just for fintech but in general, right? And so we were you know appealing to a fairly narrow set of uh, of of investors. Fortunately, we had the benefit of having been uh, sponsored by a, an anchor investment by Accion, which had been in the microfinance space for 50 years. And interesting because it's a nonprofit, but is always operated as a combination of private equity investor and provider of technical and professional support for microfinance. And it done quite well as a as a private equity investor, and they plowed some of that into experimenting with technology-led innovations to go beyond kind of traditional microfinance. And that eventually developed into an interest from the board in sponsoring what became became Quona. And they had a lot of good relationships and a lot of credibility. So that helped. Funds two and three, we've really had to stand on our own two feet, right? Uh, But fortunately, you know, we've been able to, I think, prove that indeed we could deliver what what we aim to deliver. And we've been able to both Continue to tap into the the investors in our in our first fund. They've generally all re up for second and third, and expand our uh, LP base to those investors who were perhaps skeptical, right? Kind of a hey, prove to me that you can actually do this. And I think we've been able to do so today. It's gotten easier, a because we have a larger LP base that is generally pleased and is re upping, but also because you know we now. Have been able to prove what we, we what we said we would do when we started out, uh, you know, fundraising in 2014. But it was a tall order. That said, you know, we we aimed target of 100, and we ended up very close to our cap at, at 142 for our first fund. So you know, we were able to clearly tap into a vein of interest in this uh, in this uh, in this world. That's fantastic, and it certainly has panned out. I mean, the success speaks for itself. You've got some tremendous companies in your portfolio that really represent that. I mean, having profitable economic success and also creating a ton of impact in emerging markets. Before we close, there's three questions I'm asking everyone on the podcast. Would you be ready for those uh, three questions? Sure thing. Uh, first one is, who's an entrepreneur you admire and why? So I, I have to say Elon Musk, and I know he's a controversial figure right now, uh, but regardless of whether you like him or not, there's no doubt that this guy has had a major impact uh, on the entrepreneurial world. Who else has had such a transformative impact on payments, electric vehicles, space exploration, um, and even now uh, artificial intelligence. I think he's going to go down in history as one of the greatest entrepreneurs ever, no matter what happens with Twitter. It's crazy. Absolutely. And uh, he cannot be pinned down on, on onto Twitter. Uh, beyond that, there's so much more. The second one, three key words that describe a successful business, in your opinion. Large market, product market fit, and profits. Certainly three keywords that are crucial to a successful business. And last but not least, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received and would like to pass on to others? Hard advice, which was someone told me, I'm not an operator. And I tried hard to to be an operator. The reality is I'm a hell of a lot better at charting new paths, at uh, at going off the road and uh, and, and figuring out uh, you know how to get uh, to unmarked territories. And that's what I'm good at. I'm very comfortable with that today. But that was uh, it was it was good but tough advice. I, I, I sure can imagine. It's been fantastic, Jonathan, having you on the show. Such a pleasure. There was so much more we could chat about. Is there anything else you would like to share with the audience before we close? Uh, no, Patrick, it's been a been a a, a real pleasure. Um, I guess what I would say is. For the entrepreneurs, uh, tighten your belts, focus on the fundamentals, and assume the lean times might last for a while. But the good thing is the sun will come out. It always does.
Perfect No Turn Up On. Thank you for listening to the Enthusiast Podcast. Make sure to subscribe wherever you're getting your podcasts to always stay up to date with the latest episodes. And if you enjoy the work we are doing, drop us a review or give us a rating. This show is produced by me, Patrick Alex. Also a big shout out to Constanze Ulreich, who is leading our newsletter efforts and much more. Title music by Stock Studio called That Funk Show. <laughs>